It's the final day of May in 2022, and on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. we got a lot of news to wrap up. We've been gone for three days because of the holiday. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and Layla Atassi, all fresh from a three-day beautiful weekend, raring to go to talk some news. Let's go. With Cleveland taking a much harder line on bike life, dirt bike, and ATV riders, we checked in with some other cities to see how they handled them. Layla, what did we learn? Yeah, so yeah, we, we Cleveland, of course, they've been cracking down, like you said. Last weekend, they, they orchestrated their big major crackdown. 15 riders were, were arrested on felony charges. Others were cited. And, and police were using intelligence from social media to figure out where riders were meeting before they, you know, before the ride began. And then they kind of went and rounded them all up. So City Council also simultaneously were approving tighter penalties for illegal dirt bikes and, and ATVs. So while Cleveland was doing all this, Courtney Astolfi decided to talk to current and former police officers in Baltimore, Buffalo, and Columbus to learn what approaches those cities had been taking and whether they found any success in, in managing the dirt bike issue in their cities. And she found that they were taking kind of similar approaches, it turns out. In Columbus, they had boosted fines as well. Police there used drones and helicopters to track riders down, you know, rather than rather than chasing them. And they tap into social media to, to shut down rides before they even start. They do large-scale operations similar to the wheels down uh, operation that Cleveland did as well. In Buffalo, police also increased fines last year up to $1,500. They did that in response to what was seen as, as a really big increase in reckless dirt bike uh, riding and, and ATVs during the pandemic. And they use a helicopter to follow dirt bike riders and the police boost enforcement on days that they know to draw out riders like Memorial Day and Labor Day, those sorts of, of uh, occasions. But then they do a couple things that they haven't tried in Cleveland. They offer $100 rewards for tips on illegal dirt bike use, and they destroy bikes after they are impounded twice. So they are trying wow. things like that, which uh, Cleveland has yet to, to, to attempt. In Baltimore, Baltimore once had a, a dirt bike task force, but it has since disbanded, and it seems that it was pretty much because it, attacking the problem by chasing the riders around and confiscating the bikes didn't seem to be solving anything in Baltimore. So Courtney's Baltimore source said he would like to see city officials go a different way with the problem there. He'd like to see efforts to make the bikes street legal. Then if riders break the rules, they can be issued traffic citations just as any driver would or or give them a legal place to ride, which was what former Mayor Frank Jackson's big idea was that never quite panned out. So in all these departments in different cities, they agreed they don't have time or the manpower to chase around a bunch of kids on dirt bikes. So something's got to give. They've all been spinning their wheels. I can't believe I used that. Yeah. <laughs> that just sort of popped out. I'm, I apologize, listeners. <laughs> Trying to solve this of, problem. The use of the drones is a smart move because if you can follow them to wherever they stop, you know who they are. I'm surprised that that hasn't been more of a tactic. I was a little bit surprised. I think it was the guy in Buffalo was one of them that said they're worse today. You know, they they, they used to be okay, but now they're worse. They're taunting drivers and things. And yeah, that's kind of what talked, Blaine, Griffin, Blaine Griffin was saying here too. Yeah, we right? talked about that last week, and I, I really don't buy it. It's, it seems like what's happened is residents – 
are sick of police not doing anything because police didn't want to cause anybody to die. And so in cities across America, they're trying to do something. It is nice that they're being smart about it because the worst thing you could do is have a chase and have some innocent bystander get killed because of dirt bike riding. Uh, the tactics they're using all seem smart across the country. Maybe they're talking to each other and sharing their tactics. Yeah, I mean, or or really, you know, stories like Courtney's, um, it's it's pretty easy to, to find out what other cities are doing, I guess. Um, it's uh, it's It's been in the news oh, quite a while. How many years ago was it that we were writing about about Frank Jackson's big idea? Um, it's uh, it's six years, as you pointed out to me last I know. week. You were, I that was, was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, I couldn't believe <laughs> no, it was six years ago. I think it was like 2016. <laughs> they're, they're, these bikes aren't cheap. And so the threat of losing them, uh, I think, probably has got the riders being a bit more careful. I, you know, you don't want to lose something that's worth thousands of dollars. And, man, destroying them after they're taken twice, that's pretty severe. Yeah, that's extreme. Uh, but, yeah, right. It is. It is. But may, perhaps that is the, uh, um, you know, that's the stick. You know, maybe that is the the ultimate penalty that, that would stop uh, riders from from misbehaving. <laughs> well, it's a good story. It's on cleveland.com by Courtney Astolfi. Check it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is the Ohio legislature once again trying to stick it to regular people and enrich the electric utilities, this time involving electric cars? The legislature, Lisa, is shameless. They just try to steal from us and put money into the pockets of the utilities. I'm never going to understand why they keep doing this. And they're also trying to cut competition as well. Senate Bill 307 includes subsidies to utility companies to build an electric vehicle charging network. Uh, American Electric Power, or AEP, Duke, and First Energy can charge customers, all customers, whether they drive an EV or not, via a rider to fund what they call an EV transition plan. This bill is sponsored by Senator Michael Rooley, a Republican out of Youngstown. He's trying to push the Youngstown area as Voltage Valley. The bill does have bipartisan support, and there are good pieces to it. It is being supported by the Ohio Chamber of Commerce and the Ohio Environmental Council. But what it does is it sets up a confrontation with gas companies and private groups that are also trying to create charging stations and gives the state or gives the utilities kind of an unfair advantage here. Well, look. They're going to make money on these charging stations. That's that's the way it works, right? They build the stations. People use the stations. They pay a fee. So why should we have to pay to build the stations? Then if we build the stations, we should get the fee, right? Let's <laughs> let's set it up. Okay, electric utilities. We'll build the stations. We get a cut. You pay the state budget a cut of your fee because we're making the initial investment. And really, it should come back to you and me because it's not coming from the state budget. It's coming out of our pockets. Yeah, it's coming. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the Ohio Consumers Council, uh, Michael Haw, says that he's skeptical. He says EV charging stations should be a competitive industry, and he also cites the prior poor oversight of rider fees by First Energy, talking about the grid modernization fee that didn't go to grid modernization. So yeah, there's there's a big hurdle right there. But AEP already in 2018 they had 20 or I'm sorry 10 million dollars on rebates and incentives to encourage others to build up to 375 charging stations that was approved by puco in 2018 but now they're trying to gear up and provide their own off-highway network so they're basically cutting out the little guy here 
This would be like creating a gas tax to to build gas stations for the gas companies and, and making us pay for the gas stations that we're then going to go and buy gas from. It's a preposterous thing. Is Bill Seitz's name attached to this? Anytime there's something to enrich <laughs> the utilities, he's always in the background, but I haven't seen his name pop up on this. This is wrong, wrong, wrong. Shouldn't happen. If the electric utilities want to make money off of charging stations, think of it as an investment, and you'll get the money back. It's today in Ohio. How is the Rock Hall doing two-plus years into a pandemic that wiped out a lot of its admissions? Laura, as we often point out, the Rock Hall is the one unique thing we have in Cleveland. There is no other anywhere else in the world. So we care about it. It brings international focus. They've had a rocky time during the last two years. How do they stand? Yeah, it's been tough. They're recovering. Uh, Troy Smith sat down with Greg Harris and talked about the last two years and the changes that the Rock Halls made during the pandemic, like going cashless, eliminating their box office. They're trying to be a lot more flexible and nimble, especially with staffing. And they're optimistic. They're prepping for this $100 million expansion, which is still in the works. We haven't seen the latest rendering, but it's still supposed to happen. Attendance is still down 25% from this time in 2019, but they are seeing huge crowds the Beatles exhibit that they have, and they have the biggest summer concert series ever uh, slated for this summer. But it's just tough because 2020 was gearing up to be their biggest year ever. And then, you know, it just fell off a cliff. It sounds like their expansion plans are going to change. They They had built up a pretty huge capital fund and we're planning a big expansion kind of along the, the, the lake heading toward the science museum but what they've learned during COVID is changing that around yeah they still are planning for a an expansion that includes their library and archives which are currently in a separate facility on Woodland Avenue a 10,000 square foot gallery space to hold large-scale traveling exhibits but they don't need the same kind of box office space before instead of kind of cordoning everything off for a specific purpose purpose they want to be more flexible so they can change it as they needed initial plans were for this triangular design that resembled a guitar pick slicing into the base of the museum's original design I'm not sure that's what it's going to look like when they unveil it. I think later this year, they're still planning for 2023. Um, Well, they originally planned for the 2023 finish. It's going to take two years to build, so I don't think they can make that happen. But uh, yeah, so they're tweaking that to better use it for the future. The other thing he said was that their finances are stable because they made the hard decisions. When they lost all the revenue, they cut way back on positions, and now Mm -hmm. they've learned to live without some of those positions, so their finances are very strong. Absolutely. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are the reasons for optimism about the Northeast Ohio lakefront finally being opened much more widely for use? Layla will be talking in a little bit about all the times our hopes were dashed. But what is it about this latest plan that Steve Litt found optimism in? Well, sources are telling Steve that these collaborations around lakefront planning seem to have more early momentum than any plans that have ever come before it. He, he writes that, that Mayor Justin Bibb, the city of Cleveland and the Greater Cleveland Partnership, Northeast Ohio's Chamber of Commerce, they've organized the civic task force with five working groups and more than 150 participants to carry out this fresh attempt at, at the lakefront transformation. It's the biggest effort of its kind in decades. They want to figure out 
how to follow up on that proposal unveiled last spring by by Jimmy and Dee Haslam and, and later adopted by the city to extend the downtown mall as that land bridge over the shoreway and lakefront railroad lines to North Coast Harbor. That would give us that broad, beautiful pedestrian link between downtown and, and the lakefront att- attractions, and it would create lots of opportunities to open up new land for development and expand the skyline. So this task force is is evaluating design concepts and how to pay for construction, as well as how to manage a complex pro- the, the, this complex project across election cycles and things like that. And it's 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 going to um, you know add to work that Frank Jackson had initiated with a more narrowly focused study last year to analyze regional traffic impact of of many variations of the Haslam idea. And but but Steve says that the current effort has a stronger civic consensus behind it than previous ones. The possibility of funding through sources, including the new infrastructure bill signed into law last year by President Biden, that also enhances the chances for success. So there's just all this momentum building up behind it. We've talked often about the new leadership in Cleveland and why it provides such promise. So Justin Bibb becomes mayor after 16 years of Frank Jackson and kind of quietly works on all of this stuff. We hadn't checked in on this in a little while, but I was amazed at how much had been happening behind the scenes. Beju Shaw, the new head of the GCP, has embraced this in a big way. Two of the new leaders that are significantly making a difference here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly what is at play. Fresh leadership is kind of the 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 big story of the day across the board. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're not fools, though, so we must acknowledge that a whole lot of previous ideas about the lakefront died. What are some of them, and why didn't they get completed, Lisa? Just a lack of political will, I guess. But starting in 1988, there have been at least nine plans to transform the lakefront and connect it to downtown. 1988 was the Civic Vision 2000 Downtown Plan that included a Frank Geary-designed skyscraper for Progressive Insurance Headquarters, but Progressive moved to Mayfield instead, and there was little talk about extension of a downtown mall, but nothing really specific. Then that plan, the Civic Vision 2000 and beyond, got updated 10 years later. Um, They talked about a new convention center at the north end of the mall overlooking the lake, and that never gained traction, even after a whole bunch of fanfare and rolling it out. They really didn't start to mention Land Bridge or anything, really, until about 2004. That was the waterfront district plan that called to extend the mall over the shoreway and from my reading that was the first that really talked about that it's very similar to the current Haslam plan uh, that was done by then city planning director Chris Ronane and former mayor Jane Campbell they also called for new trails parks and creating dredge islands to protect the shoreline and then there was Frank Jackson's plan in 2009 that was extensive redevelopment of city-owned land and at the Cleveland port orienting the streets diagonally to counter prevailing winds and they yeah <laughs> which is weird yeah that went nowhere that went nowhere in a hurry i uh the, the campbell ronane plan what was interesting about that is they got a ton of public buy-in they had a series of public sessions hundreds of people gathered on summer nights to to dream about it and they all wanted to close burke i mean it was an overwhelming consensus close burke it's half the downtown lakefront let's use that 
And Campbell caved in the end and didn't do it, even though she had this great mandate. So they ended up doing the, the shore way and some little things, but it was kind of a colossal failure. I think people lost interest. I, there used to be a big um, uh, schematic in the in the law department at City Hall that showed one of those ancient views of what the lakefront can be and if you really want an idea of how many times we've been to this well i forget the year of that one it must have been the 50s but it has been a failure by cleveland to make use of its lakefront right right and you know the the most recent one was the 2019 green ribbon coalition extending the mall to north coast harbor with a land bridge and that's actually just a little bit east of the current haslam plan and i don't think it requires you know uh going over the the 11th street bridge there so yeah it'll be interesting that was a hundred million dollar plan the 2014 plan was only 25 million dollars so the price keeps going up yeah but like Layla said there's good stimulus money to be used here so maybe we'll actually get to see something happen and you've got to wonder how accurate the price tags all are when you know these are just they didn't get very far in them and i had never seen the gary building for progressive before so that was new to me Mm -hmm. that was neat and how would it have changed downtown, you know? Not. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine plan to respond to the recent mass shootings, including at a grocery store in Buffalo and an elementary school in Texas? Laura, it took him a couple of days to say what he thinks should happen. He had originally proposed when he became governor some common sense gun laws that he's backed way off from because the legislature won't pass them. What does he say needs to happen now? Yeah, he's asking the legislature for bills to spend money on quote-unquote hardening Ohio schools. He wants to crack down and repeat gun offenders and ease training requirements for school employees to be armed on school grounds. And he says he's only pushing proposals that his administration can either do unilaterally or that he thinks can pass the Ohio General Assembly because he realizes his hands are tied here. His ideas after the Dayton shooting went nowhere as much as he wanted to pass them and if you remember the beginning of his pandemic response the wine with the wine he was pushing those a lot if not every day it was a couple of times a week it felt like and so he's he's not doing anything super um liberal on this nan whaley who's running against him for governor called his proposals pathetic and an abdication of leadership if you remember she was the mayor in dayton when this happened so um, it'll be interesting to see what the legislature does with this. Nothing. Right. That's what I predict. They'll do nothing. I mean, the problem is he did come in with some very common sense proposals, mm-hmm. a red flag law, and you know, he was just trying to make sure that people who aren't qualified to have weapons wouldn't have them, and the legislature wouldn't do it. The legislature may as well be a different party from DeWine because they do not work with him at all, and lately, as we saw in redistricting, he just kowtows to whatever they want. So when he comes out and says things like we need to harden the schools, it doesn't really mean much because the legislature is going to do whatever it wants. Right. And none of these, I mean, these feel like band-aids to treat the symptoms of school shootings, not to get at the root of the problem, which is that our guns are used to kill people. But I mean, so you can say you're going to talk with legislative leaders about setting up state-of-the-art security at each of the public schools in Ohio. But I mean, most schools have security. Most schools have resource officers. I mean, I don't know that that is the answer. He wants to dramatically increase the number of school safety liaisons that help educators develop emergency response plans. I think every school at this point has 
emergency response plans they hope they never have to use. And then about letting teachers be armed more easily. It's basically cutting down on how much training they have to have to get a gun and keep it in a school. I, I don't know how many teachers really want to keep a gun in school. Although when the police are refusing for more than an hour to go in and get the shooter while yeah, little kids are calling and begging, maybe you want the teachers to have a gun because the police aren't doing their jobs. It was amazing the facts that came out about that case and in Texas, how these guys just stayed outside while this guy was mowing down children. That is it's one of the most amazing things I've ever heard. It's so, so just disconcerting and worrisome and i got a buckeye firearms email this morning that was just taking on the the law enforcement saying that was the that was their fault that the massacre occurred and Mm. that's why we need to arm teachers so i can see the pro-gun lobby using this police response we we need to arm teachers because the police are too cowardly to do their job literally they use the word cowardly in their email that's obscene. It's that the cops need to do their jobs. The parents were pleading with them to do their jobs and they wouldn't I, do it. Instead, they handcuffed parents. It, it's so an I, abomination. Well, and they also put I, teachers in a, in a very bad position. I mean, if they're not backed up with liability insurance, if they're carrying a gun, I mean, so many things can go wrong with a teacher having a gun in the classroom. Well, you know, are they going to get backed get up for that if, if something goes right. wrong and they bring in a gun? I, I, I agree with you, Lisa. Like... I, I don't want a gun in my kids' classroom because I know how kids can be and they find things they're not supposed to. Like, that just seems incredibly dangerous to me. But I, I could see the gun lobby getting on, on this one idea about arming teachers and making yeah. that their next push. They're not talking to teachers. No. I'm married to a teacher. Teachers don't want guns. They want police to do their job. They want safety. Look, they also want a ban on assault weapons. Our editorial board came right out and said it. It's a simple step. When we had the assault weapon ban, this wasn't happening. As soon as it dissolved away, we've had nonstop mass killers with assault weapons. That's what they used in Buffalo. That's what they used in Texas and a dozen other of these in recent years. That's the easy thing. That's what Mike DeWine should have been calling for. Let's just get rid of those. That doesn't infringe on your right to keep and bear arms. We're just outlawing you from having military-style weapons. But, of course, the Republicans trot out all these tropes about why they, they can't Right. I mean, that. he could suggest that. It's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, but at least it would mean something. What he what he suggested about hardening the schools, you're right. The schools are hardened. You know, the doors all are locked. And when teachers are teaching, they, they don't have windows and they're locked. And the kids are behind barriers. I mean, they've done all that mm-hmm. because we've had so many of these. It's a guy in body armor with an assault weapon that is able to overcome those barriers. Yeah. You're l- listening to Today in Ohio. Prosecutors maintain he broke the law even though a judge acquitted him, but an appeals court won't take the case. Why is the case of former Brexville City Councilman Jack Pesci formally over when prosecutors say the evidence is so clear that he did it? Layla. The Court of Appeals obviously couldn't change Pesci's acquittal under the rules barring double jeopardy. I mean, 8th District Judge Anita Lester-Mays dismissed the appeal on Thursday without an opinion. Judge Kathleen Ann Keogh concurred. But, you know, here's the backstory. The state contends that Pesci's two votes in 2018 to award public money to the construction of this new police facility were criminal because Pesci's roofing company was a subcontractor on that project, you know. 
Prosecutors argue that Pesci and his company, USA Roofing, hadn't gotten paid for the roofing work when he voted when he voted to give the general contractor, Penzika Construction Company, more money for the project. Prosecutors said that if Penzika didn't get paid, then USA Roofing couldn't get paid. Pesci's attorney said at trial that Pesci signed the contract with Penzika before he took office. When he voted to award future contracts to the project, there was still money left for it that counsel had put aside in 2014. Therefore, he did not get paid from the money he voted to award. They also said that Pesci did not believe his votes were wrong and that he took no steps to conceal his involvement. And everyone knew he owned USA Roofing. So the judge found that there was there was insufficient evidence to convict him because prosecutors failed to show that he had a direct fiduciary interest in his votes to fund the project. And he found prosecutors failed to show that he knowingly committed an act that violated the law. And the prosecutors in their appeal argued that if the court did not issue an opinion rejecting that reading of the law, the acquittal would create this dangerous precedent that could eviscerate the state law barring public officials from benefiting from public contracts. But because there was nothing the appellate court could do about the outcome of this case, the court had to dismiss it. I mean, he had already been acquitted. And really, I mean, at that point, uh, that's that's it. That's the end of the story. So uh, it does seem, though, that there's a hole here that that if a judge makes and we talked about this case before and we we thought that's odd because the evidence seemed pretty clear. He did what the law defines as a crime. And but if a judge makes a glaring mistake in acquitting somebody that there's no check or balance against that. It's the final say. So if a judge does something that makes no sense whatsoever, the defendant benefits and we all go home and with no recourse. I'm a little surprised that there, there can't be some sort of review to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, you need to explain in much more detail why you're acquitting him because the case did seem strong. Because when he acquitted him, he didn't really say anything, right? Yeah, I mean that 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 is it. But but has this not happened before in the system? I mean, I guess this really is it. Once you've been acquitted, that is it. I mean, juries acquit people all the time whether or not we agree with the jury's decision or what they base their their decision upon. But that's that's, but that's it. 12 people. I mean, if you have 12 people get together and make a decision, it's different than one judge who might go rogue. We don't I'm not saying it happened here, but we've had cases of judges with mental distress that end up losing their job. So if if you just have a judge make a, a boneheaded decision, there's just no recourse. It's an odd one because I thought the prosecutors made a, a good argument about why this should be reconsidered. And I get it. It's an acquittal. So it's automatic. You can't review it. But I would think that there might be different rules if it's one judge making the ruling versus 12 jurors. And so I guess what they wanted here was simply a statement from the appellate court, but not not an, uh, an overturning of this verdict. I mean, I'm not I sure what, what that achieves, but uh, well, All right. interesting case. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A Clevelander who had been listed as missing in the sinking of the Indianapolis for nearly 80 years is missing no more. 
What's the story behind the new classification, Lisa? Yeah, this is this is great and provides closure for families. Uh, Cleveland Seaman Second Class Albert Raymond Kelly and also uh, a Seaman Angelo, Angelo Anthony Sudano of Niles, along with 11 other sailors aboard the USS Indianapolis, had their status changed from unaccounted for to buried at sea. These men went down with the USS Indianapolis on June, or July 30th, 1940. Two weeks before the end of the war, it was struck by Japanese torpedoes in the Philippine Sea. Uh, there were 1,179 sailors aboard. 879 died in the largest sea disaster in U.S. history. 300 of them went down with the ship, which sank in only 12 minutes. 900 men were cast adrift, and only 316 were rescued five days later. This ship had a little bit of an interesting history. It had four days earlier delivered parts of the little boy atomic bomb to Tinian Island, which was later dropped on Hiroshima just less than a month later. But the Navy Casualty Office says this brings closure to families, and it's their solemn duty and obligation to do that. I think a lot of people uh, understand the horror of what happened at the Indianapolis from watching the movie Jaws, mm. where Robert Shaw is a survivor and describes mm. what it's like in the water based on contemporary accounts at the time. Pretty frightening stuff. There were a lot of sharks. But it's you're right. It's, it's closure. 80 years, almost 80 years later, they get closure that, that that's what happened. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've heard from dozens of people that are interested in participating in our abortion discussion a week from today. Uh, Laura and I will be working on a draft outline of that to share with the people who have expressed interest to make sure we're not missing something important. I've heard from people with some very uh, interesting ideas for discussion that we'll try and incorporate. If you want to participate, it's noon. One week from today, send me an email at cquinn at cleveland.com. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 